Welcome back to Bible time. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So chapter 3 starts there with, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to get our hearts settled and established, Father, so that we will not, um, Lord God, have our work be in vain. Lord, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Speak to us through this lesson today. Lord, condescend to you to open your word to us, Lord. Use me, Father, just because... Because you called me, Lord, and not because of my own righteousness, for I have none other than that which is found in Christ Jesus through faith in his name and his blood. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, we looked at this man, Timothy, last, um, there in verse 2, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. And some of the things that we looked at about Timothy there was that Paul had led Timothy to Christ. We looked at some of his background, how he had a grandmother, Lois, and a mother, Eunice, who loved God, and how that from a child he was raised in the Holy Scriptures, and that even now, Timothy was considered a youth. Um, Paul would warn Timothy, Timothy to let no man despise his youth later whenever he wrote to him the letter of 1st Timothy uh, 1st or 2nd Timothy I can't remember exactly where that youth um, I think it's 1st Timothy 413 um, but Timothy had a godly family, had been raised in the word of God, and he was serving the Lord Jesus Christ with the Apostle Paul as a young man. And here to the church at Thessalonica, Paul addresses this letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So you have the older Apostle Paul, the um, well-reported of Silvanus, and the young preacher boy, Timothy in the opening, and Paul gave Silvanus and Timothy equal footing with himself. There's such a theme of the equality of the believer throughout this book of Thessal uh, to the of Thessalonians, the letter to the churches at Thessalon to the church at Thessalonica, and there is a reason for that that we've observed, and that is that this church at Thessalonica was on fire for God. They didn't have schisms. They didn't have a bunch of infighting, and as we stressed greatly or um, before. He says, for our gospel came not unto you, in chapter 1, verse 5, in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And then he says, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 2, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, there's, there's a theme here that a church that's on fire for God, that receives the word of God as the word of God, doesn't need to be ruled over. And they don't, they don't worry so much, nor do they need to worry so much about titles and who's in charge and all that, because God is so evidently in charge. Now that they received Paul's word is obvious. So this is not some kind of anarchy. I hear people, people take these things, and this is a little bit of a side note from what we're saying. We're just in review. Lord, help us to stay on track. I pray that almost every time, don't I? Lord, help me. Um, the There's an anarchist um, viewpoint out there where every man tries to just do what he wants, what's right in his own eyes, and nobody's really the pastor, and nobody really leads the church, and that's not biblical. Nowhere in this um, letter to the Thessalonians can you get that kind of a um, perspective unless you are a rebel in your heart. God works through God-ordained authorities, and these people readily recognized the authority of Paul the authority of Silvanus, the authority of Timotheus, and Paul didn't have to remind them of it. Do you hear me today? Anytime, listen, you go to a church and the pastor has to stand up and say, now listen, y'all, I love you in the Lord. I'm your pastor. I'm not saying I'm better than you, but God's given me a job to lead this flock. It is indicative of a 
of a long-standing problem with authority. The pastor would not have to say that if there wasn't a long-standing problem with authority. You say, oh, but it's a good church. Yeah, but it's had a history of problems with authority. And if you dig into it, you will find that to be the case every time. By the way, that's almost every church. Almost every single church has problems with authority. The Corinthian church had problems with authority. What was it that set the Thessalonican church apart? We're almost like a broken record here on this, on this part of the discussion because this goes all the way back to verse 6 of chapter 1. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Did you know that in battle, there's not usually nearly as much fuss about who's in charge? Do you remember back in the book of Exodus, whenever the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and the plagues were happening? At the very start, when Moses talked to everyone, they started to get on board with Moses, and he went up to see Pharaoh, and then everything went south. And Pharaoh said, you're going to have to make bricks without straw. Who remembers that? And next thing you know, they were all complaining at Moses and fussing. But then God gave Moses the power to turn the water into blood. And then came all the other plagues, like the lice and the frogs and the hail mixed with fire and all of these things. And you don't read again about a single Israelite fussing at Moses that whole time. Then they got out of Egypt and they get down by the Red Sea and they said, you've brought us out here to kill us because here came Pharaoh and they were scared. But then Moses stretched out his rod and the Red Sea parted and you don't hear about any more fussing during the whole crossing. You don't hear about Dathan and Abiram uttering one fuss. Korah didn't say anything. Miriam had nothing to say but to dance with timbrels after they got across. Everybody was happy. Listen to me. When you're going through the battles, that's when most of the time people will work together the best. It's just how it works. When you're in a war, and in a modern warfare scenario, and there are bullets flying over your head, you don't really care so much about being the one in charge. And a lot of times, men are pretty much happy to let the second lieutenant run his mouth and get his head shot off. And they're just happy to dig the foxholes and not be the one in charge getting shot at. And that's usually the case with people. And listen to me today, affliction is not a bad thing. Listen to me. What is a soldier for? Fighting, says the young man. He's right. So what good is a soldier that's not fighting? Not really any good. It's just preventative. And did you know that soldiers who are not fighting notoriously get in trouble all the time? constantly in one problem and then on to the next problem. Soldiers are known for drunkenness and immorality and fighting and brawling. And if they get out on the town, the next thing you know, there's fist fights and this unit's got to fight with that unit and Air Force has got to fight with Army and Navy's got to fight with the Air Force and the Army's got to fight with the Navy and everybody's getting in fist fights and drunken brawls. But when the bullets start flying, people line up and follow orders. Isn't that amazing? And so here's a church that's in the battle, a church that's in the foxholes, and Paul doesn't have to send a letter to them and say, I am the Apostle Paul who has been given this apostleship by Jesus Christ, and you should hear me because I've been three days in the deep, and I've been beat 40 times, save one, three times, and I've been stoned, and etc. and etc. like he had to do to the church at Corinth. And here we have this text where he says in chapter in 1 Thessalonians 3 3 that no man shouldn't be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So instead of having to boss them around to try and get them to do the right thing, he's comforting them that they're going to make it, that they're appointed to their afflictions. And that's exactly the same scenario that you get on the battlefield. When the bullets are flying, the soldiers don't need bossed. They need comforted. They don't need barked at. They need encouraged. And that's usually what happens. We've got this whole thing messed up in America. Did you know that? We've got preachers that have a full-time job of running around and comforting churches who are not in the fight. 
Their whole job is to get up there and tell the churches and tell the people, listen, when the storm's on, you're still going to make it. Hold on to Jesus. And we need those things when we're in the fight. But the problem is we've come to expect that in our churches without the fight. And we don't want in the fight and we don't want in the affliction and we don't want persecution. We just want a bunch of people to come up and pump us up and, and give us a bunch of encouragement. And what we need is some some of the old Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5 church judgment where he comes in and ends up telling them, do I need, next time I come, I, what do you want me to come? You want me to come and be happy or come with a rod? We need some old rod preaching in our churches, unfortunately, across this land. Because we're not in the fight, we've laid down the shield, we've laid down the armor, we've laid down the sword, and all we want to have is ice cream and hot dogs, and nobody wants to get in the fight in America anymore and do something for Christ. And if they do, they want to do it all sugar-coated, cotton candy style, and they don't actually want to enter into spiritual mortal combat for souls. And that's the condition that we're in in this day. And that's why we have all of this self-help preaching and all of this um, psychology, Christian, so-called Christian psychology being passed off for preaching in our day is because we're not in the fight. But here the Apostle Paul sent this man, Timothy, and this brother in the Lord, this young preacher boy was sent. We looked it up. One of my sons looked it up the other day. And from Thessalonica to Athens was close to 300 miles close to 300 miles. And I looked there on the map and Athens is not the Southwest, it's the Southeast. But the South part of Greece in those days, according to the old map, if the people knew anything that wrote it, listen, always take man-made stuff with a grain of salt. But according to that map, the South of Greece is called Achaia. If I even said that, according to the way the scholars do, you know, who cares? They don't know how to say it either. Everybody just has their best guess. And then Macedonia. So is the northern part where Thessalonica was. And Paul's writing this apparently from Athens. And he says here in chapter 1, verse 7, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Now, as Alexander the Great started in the north up by Thessalonica and his daddy had conquered Greece from there, so, um, so as he had done, so the gospel conquered Greece in the same way from the north. It went from the north on down around to the south, and it came by way of this Thessalonican church, an overlooked church. Now, Athens was a great city. Athens was a powerful city. Athens was a wealthy city. And all of these other cities down through Greece, uh, many of them had more notoriety than the little town of Thessalonica. But God used Thessalonica, and God used Thessalonica because they were willing to to suffer. I need one of you to find the hymnal. So while you're getting that hymnal, I want you to think about this, that this little church in Thessalonica, this embattled church, this tribulation church, this afflicted church is the church that God used to launch the gospel throughout the entire Grecian land area. And he says here in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. He's saying, hold the line for yourselves. Know that we are appointed thereunto. Um, General Patton has said that whenever he told, whenever he got up to speak to the American soldiers before they went over to England and then commenced to launch the attack on France to take back France from Nazi Germany during World War II, General Patton told his men, let the other guys die for their country, you live for yours. But he also, as he was telling them, he was telling them this, and they called him old blood and guts. They called General Patton old blood and guts Patton. And they called him that because he was gory in his speech to them. And he told them, you live for yours as long as you can. You fight, you kill, you stand, don't back down. You didn't join this military, he told them, to go and sit in a tent and learn marching drills. You joined the military to fight. You're here to fight. You've been called to fight. This is what you have been appointed to. You do your best to live, but 
but you understand that you're, some of you are going to die. Make it up in your hearts right now that you might die, that you may die, but that you're going forward and you're going to live as long as you can and do as much as you can, but be ready to die. You are appointed to die. The Spartans in Greece had this down. The Spartans in Greece um, would, in southern Greece, even further than Athens, the Spartans would consider it such a shame to, to run away from a battle, such a shame that they would rather die than flee. And they made it up in their minds that they were going to die before they fled from a battle. We were talking the other day about the um, battle between the independent nation of Texas and the Mexican nation. And as that battle took place, General Santa Ana came up from the south and he attacked Texas. And he was going to take the guns from the settlers so they would have no ability to, to defend themselves from the, from the savage Indians that were um, killers at that time and that were angry with those white men. And that's just the raw facts of it. And we can talk about the facts without taking sides, I hope. Just tell the truth of it. And here was the... Here was the situation. A bunch of Americans got holed up in the Alamo. We talked about this the other day. There were Americans who had become Texans and Americans who came down to help the Texans. And there were also Mexicans who were rebelling against their own murderous general. Um, it's amazing how revisionist history has been is just destroying countries like Mexico and America. If we knew our own histories right, we'd be a lot better off. But in any, in any case, the Mexicans there, they didn't want the General Santa Ana to rule them either. He was a murderer. He was a liar. He was a thief. He was a covenant breaker. He was a truce breaker. And here he came and he had murdered the men at Goliad who had surrendered and laid down their weapons. He told them, I'll let you march away if you lay down your weapons. And they laid down their weapons and they marched away and he murdered them in cold blood. And those men at the Alamo knew it and they decided that they were not going to surrender, that they would fight till the last man died. How would you like to be the last man? One man standing in front of 10,000 soldiers coming to kill you. They've already killed everybody else. But they did it, and they fought to the last man standing. They made up their minds that they were going to stand for the independent nation of Texas, and they were not going to let this Santa Ana run over them and kill all of their people, and they would stand and die to preserve the freedom that they believed God had given them. And to protect the innocent, to protect the women, to protect the children, and they did. They stood and they died. Paul here is saying in 1 Thessalonians 3 that no man should be moved for, by these afflictions, for yourselves know that ye are appointed thereunto. <coughs> Timothy had been sent up here to comfort the church. Timothy had been sent to establish the church, and now Paul is sending up this, this battle cry to the church at Thessalonica. Now, imagine the inspiration they got from seeing little preacher boy Timothy show up on their doorstep. Marching into enemy territory to establish the church. We talked about that. <coughs> Now, um, here, this is absolutely critical to get in our minds that we are appointed as Christians to afflictions. A soldier can get it in his mind and die for his country. We need to get it in our minds to the point that we're willing to die for Christ. Um, go to Luke chapter 16. I want you to see this. Lord, help us right now. Help me in my ramblings, Lord, not to waste people's time. Luke chapter 16. And verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He had whatever he wanted to wear and whatever he wanted to eat. Verse 20, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Which guy would you rather be just from that information there? 
Would you rather be clothed in purple and fare sumptuously, eat what you want? Or would you rather be in rags sitting at that guy's gate, having the dogs lick your sores where you have open boils with pus seeping out and the dogs are licking them? Which one would you rather be? It's obvious. Just say it. I know you know the rest of the story and you don't want to be that guy, but who would you rather be if you look at those circumstances? The rich man. Absolutely. And I know you know this. It says here, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, which one would you rather be? This is obvious too. Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, not the rich man. Here's our problem. We know this is true, but we still want to be the rich man on earth and Lazarus in heaven. This is our problem. Do you hear me today? Pay attention. We want our cake and eat it too, as the saying goes. We want everything to roll out just nice for us on earth and be easy and easy to bear. We don't want to have to work too hard. If we do work, we want to get a good wage and have a good savings account and have good financial security and financial peace and insurance and everything else all lined out, some of which might not necessarily be wrong, but in general comes from this this desire to make our kingdom on earth and we want the best of both worlds we're always looking for the best of both worlds there um, we'll read this hymn in a little bit thank you for finding that for me um, so here in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments i want to ask you a question did the rich man go to hell for being rich now bernie sanders may think so but he's wrong The rich man did not go to hell for being rich. Did Lazarus go to heaven for being poor? No, otherwise we would all go be poor if we really believed the Bible. Now, there's a lot of people that think this way. The the monks all kind of think this way. We, the Aramites and the ascetics, all of these people that get out here and they and the hermits and they try and hide from humanity, or they get in in monasteries and try and punish themselves and deny themselves so that they can get to heaven. It's not going to get you to heaven. How poor do you have to be to get to heaven? No poor. A poor man will go to hell just as fast as a rich man as far as that's concerned. Why did Lazarus go to heaven? I want to ask you. How did he get there? What? <coughs> because he was saved. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a believer in Jesus. That's how he got saved. You say it doesn't say it there. No, it says it everywhere else. And you have to take Bible with Bible. You have no choice. You don't get to just take scriptures and make them say what you want and mean what you want. No scriptures of any private interpretation. God has forbidden that. So he was saved. Lazarus believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Lazarus have a nice life? No, it went lousy with Lazarus. He died in his sicknesses at the, at the rich man's gate. And, oh, Lord, help us. Wasted so much time already. We've got to keep moving. This, this so ties together. The rich man, why did he go to hell? Because he was rich? No. Why did he go to hell? He was lost. He did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he went to hell in his sins. Did he take his fine purple clothing with him? Did he take his yummy food with him? No. Did the rich man take, did the poor man Lazarus take his sores with him? No. Did he take his rags with him? No. We've got to get this figured out. Look down here at verse 26, uh, verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime, speaking to Lazarus, look at verse 24, and to the rich man, and here the rich man cried and said, father Abraham, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Now, again, did God comfort Lazarus just because he was poor? Or is there a bigger principle behind this thing? 
We usually go to this text to discuss the reality of hellfire, and it's very poignant and very um, very much the purpose of this text. But there is a principle behind this text that the believer here represented had a bad life on earth. And the unbeliever here represented had a good life on earth. The Bible says the wicked is reserved unto the day of judgment. The Bible says some men's sins are open beforehand, others go on unto judgment. And that, we can't even get into all of that right now. We're going to keep moving here. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.17 is another one of the texts we've already studied. Let's look at that real quick. 2.17 in 1 Thessalonians. You need to be turning your Bibles. Turn your pages. He says here, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. We studied here um, hope and separation and how the devil had hindered the Apostle Paul. Here's the one guy in the whole city who really cares and loves about men, this guy and his evangelistic band, and everybody in the city is fighting him. And he doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a place. He's the one guy not allowed there. You the guy coming in to sell pornographic idols, which were the vogue then in Greece, the guy coming in to sell pornographic idols, he's welcomed with open arms. And the city says, come on, have a nice booth right by the city gate. The guy coming in offering eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord is run out of town on a rail. Do you see this? This is what we are appointed to, to afflictions. Now, that doesn't mean, when it says we're appointed to afflictions, it doesn't mean that God's saying anybody that gets saved is going to get saved through their afflictions. Obviously not. But the very nature of salvation and being a disciple of Christ will bring affliction. The Bible says, yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. This was written to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And we've, again, if that does not exclude American Christians. You say, oh, well, we've been so blessed with freedom in America that, that this doesn't apply to us. You are wrong. If it doesn't apply to you, you are not living godly in Christ Jesus, period. And then American Christians make all these excuses and people overseas say, wow, those American Christians are so carnal. They don't suffer any persecution. It would do them a lot of good to suffer persecution. That is carnal. If they are Christians and following Christ, they are suffering persecution. Persecution doesn't make anybody holy. It doesn't make anybody a Christian. The only way you're going to make it, the only way that you are going to make it through your persecution, help over there, please. You help. Thank you. The only way you are going to make it through persecution for Christ is if you are a Christian, if you are following Christ. And if you're not following Christ, you're likely not a Christian. Does this make sense today? Listen to me. All these churches out here where people say, well, at least we don't have to suffer persecution in America, even though we're godly. They're not godly. They're not Christians. If they were, they would be suffering persecution. You say, well, what about the golden age of Christianity? Some of you are just saying, would you stop beating this horse? It's dead already. No, it's not. It's still running around and whinnying all over the field in America. This horse is very much alive and it needs beat to death. This horse of this idea of godly Christians who are exempt from persecution because they're wealthy Americans. Listen to me. In the golden age of Christianity in this country, about 1900, the peak of D.L. Moody's um, career as an evangelist, the the launching point, uh, this is when American missions were on fire and moving forward for God. The ones who were living in godly in Christ Jesus were either advancing the gospel by bearing the persecution across the seas of their brethren sharing the gospel in places where they were persecuted, 
or they were going overseas and being persecuted for Christ Jesus to carry the gospel. Read the life of J.O. Frazier. Read the life of Adoniram Judson. Read the life of Hudson Taylor. Read the life of George Mueller. Read the life of these great men of God. Read about the reproach they suffered. Read about the difficulties they went through. Go back to the Great Awakening. Read Jonathan Edwards' account, how that the man that God used more than any other American in the Great Awakening in America to turn this nation back to God was kicked out of his own church shortly after the greatest revival this nation has ever seen. He was thrust out from his church. He lost his living. He lost his home. He lost his his prestige. He lost his honor. He lost his name to a lot of people. Read about how all through the entire um, read about how all through the entire Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards was maligned and hated. Read about Charles Finney. Whether you like him or hate him, God used him, and Charles Finney was attacked and hated through his entire ministry. Listen to me today. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you are not persecuted, you are not in the battle. Now there will be ebbs and flows of persecution and you can go and persecute yourself and do stupid stuff to look persecuted so that you can try and pretend like you're holy like a monk or a Catholic or something like that, and that's a bunch of hogwash. We know that already, right? I hope we know that. That's not what I'm talking about today. If you follow Jesus, you will be hated of all men for my name's sake, said Jesus Christ, speaking of the collective body of Christ. Sometimes there's a city that isn't so persecuted, and you know why God does that? So that they can help the city that is persecuted. That's why. And they that live godly in Christ Jesus, if they're not being directly persecuted, they are actively involved in alleviating the sufferings of the church where it is being persecuted and carrying the gospel of Christ to areas where it is not even permitted to be. That's the nature of true Christianity. Pastor Reggie showed us yesterday how that um, salvation comes and then sanctification, where uh, which is this separation from the world. And first there's this salvation where I'm brought out of the world in my spirit. And then there's sanctification in my soul where God is getting the soul purged, the, the soul purged of the world. And then there is evangelization, which is the outworking of the anointing of God. On a Christian, anybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus will share the gospel. Either they will carry bullets for those who can shoot or they'll shoot. Either they will be the ones preaching or the ones holding up the hands of the preacher who's preaching. But they will be actively involved and engaged in the conflict. And when we're actively involved and engaged in the conflict, all the other fights in between us just kind of melt away. They don't matter. They don't matter. It's not a big deal. We got to keep moving so we can get to some of these other texts here. We must settle in our minds. Go to 1 Peter. We must settle our get our minds and our hearts settled to suffer for Christ. We must have a heart that's ready to suffer for Christ. And again, you say, "Well, here in America, I don't really have to suffer for Christ." You are either ignorant or a liar. And whenever you get in your heart settled to suffer for Christ, you'll find that you can become effective for Christ and he will give you plenty of opportunities to suffer for Christ. This whole thing about this, the, of over-exalting the persecuted church because they're persecuted and then under, uh, and then not holding the so-called unpersecuted church to task is a false concept. I know that was a lousy sentence; didn't make much sense. First Peter four one. Moving on. Sometimes it's better to leave something lie than to try and fix it. First Peter four one. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Who in the Bible is exempt from suffering by this text. What Christian? 
There is not one. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves. Get it in your mind. You are not going to get everything you want in this life if you follow Jesus. You, it is going to cost you dearly to follow Christ. He says, listen to this, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Isn't that what we find here in the Thessalonican church? Paul has nothing to rebuke them about. Why? Is it because they're so holy? No. Is it because suffering made them holy? No. It's because that while you're suffering for Christ, you don't have time to sin. You don't have energy to waste sinning. You say, well, I can still sure sin. It just hasn't gotten bad enough yet. It'll get there. And when it gets bad enough, you don't have time. You don't have energy. All you can do is cry out to God. All you can do is walk with God. It's sink or swim. Sink or swim. You got to get a hold of Jesus or you're going to sink. And so you cling to him with all you've got. And you don't have time to cling to the world. He says, lay aside the sin and the weight that doth so easily beset us. When you're being chased by an angry mob, all of a sudden the sins and weights that doth so easily beset you are left behind. And you're running through the woods in the middle of the night with an angry mob chasing you, wanting to kill you and hang you because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, you're not worrying about lust. You're not worrying about covetousness. You're not worrying about backbiting. You're not worried about gossip. You're not worried about what Brother Joe said about you or what you, say, what you should say back about him to Sally. You're just worried about getting through the woods and trying to survive another day. And you're praying the whole time. Do you get it? Does it copy? Does that make sense? Okay. Arm yourself likewise with the same mind. Now, if you live in a place where there is not active, open persecution, get in the battle. Get involved. Start praying. Start fasting for those who are. Get in the battle. Make Take this thing. Take the offensive. God, do you know why some churches aren't in the battle? I know we already asked this question. God's giving them the job of being the artillery. They are the offensive ones. The other ones are on defense. The ones that are being chased and hunted and killed and, and ferreted out and they're living in the woods. How much missions can you do living in the woods under a tarp trying to dig roots to feed your family all year round because all the villages around you in Chiapas, Mexico have kicked you out like that family I read about a number of years ago and they won't let you buy. They won't won't you let you sell, sell. They won't give you a job. They won't pay you wages. If you show up in town, they scream and rage and throw things at you. And you have to walk five, six, seven miles through the jungle to even get to a village where they don't know you so that you can try and trade some of your forage for something that you need desperately just to survive another day. You're not doing much missions. You're just suffering. So God allows some churches to not be under the scourge of direct attack so that they can be on the offense for Christ. Man, it, it just really gets me. It really bothers me to hear this thing where, oh, I wish the church in America would get persecuted. That's not the problem. The problem is ungodliness. And a lot of these places that say that, I'm, I'm ashamed to even hear that thing voiced because a lot of these places that say that only have Christians because of American evangelists and missionaries that left their comforts to go and preach to them. And a lot of times they're saying it to American missions and missionaries who are trying to help them in their persecution. What an embarrassment to Christ. What an embarrassment We've got to recognize that all who name Christ are not Christ's. Everybody that's got a cross on the building is not a Christian. Okay? The Bible says all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Lord, help us in this thing. You, he says, thereunto are ye appointed. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, to actually give the verse. We are appointed thereunto. We are appointed to suffer. If you join the military and you are a soldier, what did you join up for? To fight. You know what's happening in America these days? A lot of people join the military to go to college. 
If they go join the military and spend a couple years in the college, um, in military, the military pays their college. So, oh, that's a decent deal. So they jump on board and they join up in the military and then they get deployed. Ah! Shock and horror. There's bullets. There's bombs. What do I do? Oh, no. I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. If you said, if you signed your name on that little contract with the United States government and saluted and went in there and got your uniform, you signed up to die. Oh, I didn't sign up for this. I want to go home. I want to go to college and have a girlfriend and a doggy and play frisbee. You signed up to die. Suck up. Suck it up. Man up. It it makes me sick. Listen to me. If you're going to be a soldier, you signed up to die. And Christians, listen to me today. If you sign up to be a Christian, you signed up to die. Here's this song that was written by Thomas Shepard and George Allen. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. The consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free and then go home my crown to wear for there's a crown for me upon the crystal pavement down at Jesus's piercing feet joyful i'll cast my golden crown and his dear name repeat oh precious cross oh glorious crown oh resurrection day ye angels from the stars come down and bear my soul away the old spartans in greece would bury two of their citizens in marked graves Two groups of people got marked graves. It wasn't their rulers. It wasn't their politicians. It wasn't their wealthy. There were two groups of people that got buried in Sparta, Greece. Spartans, from the time their little boys were little bitty children, they would be trained in warfare to be soldiers for Sparta. Sparta was a little city, comparatively, that was able to hold back huge armies in battle and stayed free because they had a soldier's mindset. And they were born believing that they were appointed to die for their city, for their city nation of Sparta. And they would take their little boys up in the mountains in the cold and leave them in the snow amongst the wolves and tell them they'll be back later to pick them up and make them survive to harden them and prepare them for the battle ahead. I'm not saying this is the way to treat your little children. This is a temporal ideal for a temporal city nation. But we have an eternal nation that we're going to, and we need to get some backbone, and we need to get the mindset of dying. Two people in Sparta were allowed to be buried with marked tombs. Everybody else got unmarked tombs. The first one that would get buried was a soldier that died in battle for his country. They got marked tombs, nobody else, except a mother who died giving birth to her children. A soldier dying in battle and a mother giving birth to a child were the only ones that got marked graves in Sparta. They were considered heroes. That's what they were appointed for. That's what they lived for. That was what the woman, she was giving birth to men who would fight for Sparta and women who would stand by the men and give birth to more men and the whole propagation and continuation and continuity of the Spartan city nation was through more children being born and more soldiers dying on the battlefield and they understood that their freedom as a city nation was dependent on the blood of their soldiers Soldiers, and that it was going to cost them something to have what they wanted, which was freedom. And if they could die for their freedom, how much more can we die for the name of Jesus Christ? He said to the church at Thessalonica, ye are appointed thereunto. Afflictions are your lot in life. Can a man live in pleasure and comfort all his life long and be saved, I don't even believe it's possible. Read your Bible. I don't even believe it's possible for a man to live in pleasure and comfort all his life, no afflictions, and be saved. 
It's not even possible. The Bible says you are appointed to afflictions. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I'm not talking about getting your toe stepped on or having the preacher say something that makes you mad. couple people we need to think about. How about Job in the Bible? Oh, he was wealthy for a season, but he went through his afflictions. And he was wealthy after that affliction, but boy, did he go through it. If you could see Job today in his worst state and you were offered all his riches to go through all of his trials, you would not take it. You would not take it. How about Joseph? Oh yeah, he sat on a throne but what did it cost him before he ever got on that throne? And by the way, it was a throne he didn't really want. How about Moses, Elijah, Nathan the prophet? He, he was a friend of the king. Boy, isn't that good. Well, then his king got deposed because of sin that he had to preach against and risk his own neck preaching against his own king's sin. And then whenever his, his king got judged for his king's sin, guess what Nathan got? Judged with his king for the sin that Nathan preached against. How about them apples? Boy, that's fun. Daniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Joshua stood against idolatry amongst his own people. He had, he had nonstop problems to deal with. Not like Moses did, but he had his problems and his afflictions and his giants he had to fight. Look at Paul, the apostle, the disciples scattered from Christ. Abel, the very first brother in the Bible, killed by his so-called brother because his works were righteous and his brothers were evil. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. To be called of God to believe in God is to be called of God to afflictions. Go to 2 Timothy 3.13. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men, this is the next verse after, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Here, Timothy is told, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Listen to me and look up here today. If you follow Christ, if you do, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, and you will be persecuted for Christ. Do you hear me? If you follow Christ, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, and you shall suffer persecution if you follow Christ, period. Do you hear me? It's a soldier's job. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. It's a soldier's call. I talked to a boy one day, and this boy, he was trying to put on like a Christian, but it wasn't panning out. And it was obvious he was not saved. But finally, one day, as he was trying to continue to maintain that he was saved, finally, one day, I quoted the verse to him, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, which is Second Timothy 2 and um, verse 4. Actually, um, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And the boy looked at me and said, Wait, 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 wait a second. Wait, I didn't sign up to be a soldier then you didn't sign up. Do you hear me? Then you didn't sign up. And that's what I told him that day. I said, listen, and I said his name, if you didn't sign up to be a soldier, you didn't sign up. Jesus is calling followers. He's calling disciples. He's calling you to follow him. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't believe Jesus. If you believe Jesus, you'll follow Jesus. If you believe Jesus and follow Jesus, you'll suffer persecution and hardness for your faith. There's no two ways about it. it does, it's a law in the Bible. It's as sure as gravity. Do you hear me? It is as sure as gravity. In fact, it's more sure because I don't know where gravity is mentioned in the Bible. 
but this is. So 2 Timothy there gives us that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Go to Luke 17. Jesus had said in another place, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Maybe that is Luke 17. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Now here's Luke 17, 33. Whosoever shall seek to lose his, save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. That means you will lose your ambitions. You will lose your pride. You will lose your name. You will lose your honor. You will lose your riches. At least to some degree, you will lose out in this life if you follow Jesus. It will cost you to follow Jesus. You're called to it. You are appointed to it if you follow Jesus. What would you say to a soldier? You meet him after he's been on the battlefield for a month and he's crying and he <laughs> I had to sleep on the ground. My food tastes terrible. It rained on me. I thought I heard a bullet. <laughs> what would you say to him? What on earth are you doing? I thought you were a soldier, right? If you follow Jesus, you're called to be a soldier. You're appointed to affliction. Luke 14, quickly. Luke 14, verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, somebody out there says, well, there's a difference between salvation and discipleship. Show it to me. I haven't found it yet. Oh, it'd be handy. That'd be really convenient, wouldn't it? You say, well, well, I can get saved and live like the world and love the world and still make it to heaven because I'm at least saved. Where is your verse? Where's your scripture for that? Show me. Show me in the Bible where you can justify such a philosophy. It doesn't exist. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If any man come after me, he says, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he hath sufficient to finish it lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it all that behold it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king going to war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise he, whosoever he be of you, <coughs> that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Is that plain? Do you understand that today? I'm looking for a response. Do you understand what he's saying? Is that plain? Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciples. Do you know what Jesus said later to them? I Henceforward I call you not servants but friends, for the servant knoweth not what the master doeth. <coughs> he said, I'm promoting you. Beyond disciple, beyond servant to friend. But you don't get the promotion without starting at disciple. Disciple square one. Being a disciple of Christ is square one. That's where it starts. He said, if any man be ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him before the angels and my father in heaven. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father in heaven and the angels, Christ said. Make up your mind. Count the cost. Listen to me today. Look at the rich man in his purple and faring sumptuously and look at Lazarus by the rich man's gate in rags and full of sores. 
hours and count the cost. This is going to tie into tomorrow's message because he talks about tribulation tomorrow. So Lord willing, we're going to look into some of that and we're going to look at this, what Christ said about it and what Christ preached to the Jews about it some, Lord willing. And we're going to see that it's very likely that if you follow Jesus, you will be the one in rags. You will be the one begging for crumbs. You will be the one dumpster diving because nobody will give you an honest job. It doesn't matter that you may be the hardest working, most faithful, honest employee that anybody in the entire countryside could possibly hope to have because you at some point, whether before or after the or during, I mean, the tribulation that's coming which is a different tribulation, the tribulation mentioned in the next verse, but the seven-year tribulation that's coming at the very latest, you will not be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And if you take the mark of the beast, God says you're going to hell. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose. Who am I going to serve? What is worth it? Am I going to go for God and his kingdom, or am I going to go for the world and this kingdom here on earth? And you're going to try and ride the fence because we all do. Listen to me. Every one of us likes comfort. Every one of us likes good food. Every one of us likes nice clothes. Every one of us likes nice transportation and a nice place to live. Every one of us likes to look sharp and well put together. None of us likes suffering reproach. But this world and this devil that we face is an enemy of God. And if you will be godly in Christ Jesus, you will, you, ye shall suffer persecution. You're going to suffer for Christ or you're not his. If you will not bear your cross, it is evidence that you are not his. Count the cost. Go to Revelation 12 as we close. That's all I'm asking you to do today. Count the cost. Count the cost. You say, I don't want to go to hell. Well, good. I don't want you to go to hell either. Neither does God. That's why Jesus died for you and was buried and rose again the third day so that you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the same wimpy voice that's going to say, I don't want to go to hell. And I'm not trying to mock you. I'm just trying to be real with you today. The same voice that says, oh, I don't want to go to hell is going to say, oh, I don't want to suffer persecution if you're not careful. This isn't about not going to hell. This is about the fact that we have sinned against Almighty God and we are deserving of the wrath and fiery indignation of God. And he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins. They mocked him. They scourged him. They spit upon him. They buffeted him. They killed him as far as they were able, though they were unable to. And he himself had to give up the ghost. And he said, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down. And he gave up the the ghost and died for your sins and he said if they hate the master they'll hate you too and what is the what is what are you being offered here today what is this free gift of salvation that you are being offered today it is love the love of the father for you the love of jesus christ for you who loved you so much he gave himself for you it is his comfort because he said i'll send you the comforter and it is a home in heaven with god listen to me if you just don't want to get out of hell but you don't love christ Christ enough to suffer for him, you're not going to enjoy heaven because heaven's all about Christ. You say, what is there to do in heaven? Worship Christ. There'll be some other stuff, evidently, that's directly related to it in the new heaven and new earth. I don't understand all that. But the crux of the whole thing is worshiping Christ. If this isn't about Christ, what are you in this for? What did you join up for? You know, I didn't join up to be a soldier. What did you join up for? Well, I didn't want to go to hell, but this is like hell on earth. Yeah, it is. We're appointed thereunto. You get your bad stuff in this life, you get your good stuff in the next as a Christian. Get it in your heart. Get it in your mind. Count the cost right now. Count the cost and make a decision. Am I going to bear my cross and follow Jesus? Or am I going to sell out on Jesus because I love this present world and I would rather have the good of this world and, and risk the bad later because I can't see the bad right now and I'm just going to put my head in the sand and hope it's not as bad as it says. Or are you going to sign up and get behind Jesus and follow your Lord and Savior who is a God of war, by the way, in the Bible? If you do, he calls you to be a soldier. Are you going to follow Jesus? 
Father, in Jesus' name, pray that you'd use this message and help us to settle it in our hearts, count the cost, fight manfully onward, bear our cross, despise the shame like you did for the joy that's set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.